0: it now and open our hearts, Lord, to the preaching of your word. Cast down the idols that compete for our allegiance with you. Throw down the false images that we gravitate towards that prevent us from receiving the fullness of your truth. Lift up the name of Jesus among us and give us hearts that are ready to hear and minds that are clear to understand. And I pray, Lord God, for me as the preacher of your word, that you would grant me wisdom, clarity, authority, and Lord, that it would be clear that these things are from you and not from man. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in a sermon series on uh, 1 Timothy. Evidently, there's a lot to talk about in the first chapter of 1 Timothy because we've just now arrived at chapter 2. And the sermon series is called Keeping Christianity Weird. Keeping Christianity Weird. And if you are a traditional believer who adheres to the teaching of the Word of God and the apostolic tradition of the church in the eyes eyes of our culture, you are necessarily weird now. And for many people, I don't mean weird in a good way. I I mean weird in a Kim Davis sort of way. That's how we're perceived. Genuine commitment to Jesus Christ now makes us the other Genuine commitment to Jesus Christ now makes us the other in our culture. Just this week, the Washington Post reported that for the first time, Harvard's combined number of atheists and agnostics among its incoming class exceeds the number of Catholics and Protestants combined. This is deeply significant Because Harvard is the bellwether of trends among the cultural and ruling elites in the United States. As Harvard goes, so goes the governing and intellectual establishment. So as the class of 2019 comes into their own, we will be in a setting in which orthodox Christian conviction is decidedly, at least as far as the elites go, decidedly out of the mainstream. And even today, as uh, Russell Moore has humus- humorously stated, he said, Christians are becoming aware that there's a large portion of society who would be relieved if all the evangelicals were raptured. <laughs> Earlier this summer, uh, one of my favorite Christian commentators, uh, Rod Dreher, who, unlike um, uh, Russell Moore, uh, Rod Dreyer is on the Eeyore end of the spectrum. Uh, Rodreyer took up this theme of alien and exile in a piece that he wrote for Time Magazine and in that piece he said, we have to accept that we really are living in a culturally post- Christian nation. The fundamental norms Christians have long been able to depend on no longer exist. Orthodox Christians must understand that things are going to get much worse, much more difficult for us. We are going to have, listen, we are going to have to learn to how to live as exiles, learn to live as exiles in our own country. So, brothers and sisters, we are, I am convinced, we are well and truly as the church of Jesus Christ in exile in the United States. We are outsiders in our own country. We are resident aliens. And if that's true then, if that is the case, and I'm convinced that it is the case, then how are we to relate to the post-Christian mainstream around us? How are we supposed to interact with a world that no longer understands reality in the way that the Christian faith understands reality? Well, one of the ways that has been tried of dealing with a secularizing society, a society in which Christian conviction is seen as alien and even harmful, is to just 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 dump those beliefs and practices that make us weird. We, let's just eliminate those weird beliefs and weird practices that make us outside of the mainstream in our own culture. And that's been the That's been the project of so-called mainline Protestant Christianity for well over 100 years now. The the mainlines just said, well, you know, the the society doesn't like X about Christian faith and practice, so let's just not do that anymore. And just this past week, a flagship mainline church in downtown Winston-Salem did just that by voting to jettison the Lord Jesus Christ's own clear teaching about marriage. It majority rule wonderful? But the result of this enterprise has been that churches that compromise core Christian doctrine and practice are, one, by definition, no longer Christian. If you jettison your core doctrine and practices, you're not what you were. You're now something else. And number two, they have become irrelevant to and dismissed by the prevailing culture collaborationist christianity is what i would call it Co- collaborationist christianity doesn't work and it isn't christian and by the way collaborators aren't weird <laughs> they're just pathetic wannabes who want to be who want to keep a veneer of spi- spirituality and still be permitted to sit at the cool kids secularized table is there an alternative to this? Yes, there is, and it's presented right here in 1st Timothy. We just read it this morning in Paul's first letter to Timothy. In this passage we hear the apostles' admonition on how the Christian community of the 1st century uh, church in Ephesus was to interact with the non-Christian world in which they inhabited. Remember, Paul's not writing to a, society, to a church that's in a society that shares its understandings of life, the universe, and everything, to quote Douglas Adams. So what do we hear at the beginning of this passage? Well, first of, first of all, what we hear in the tone of this entire piece from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, is this. God does not just love the church. He loves the society into which we have been exiled. Let me repeat that. God doesn't just love his church. He loves the society into which we have been exiled. So Paul's first command for us in relating to the non-Christian culture we live in is this. Pray for it. Pray. First of all, first of all, of first importance then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, thanksgivings, Be made for all people. Here's the amazing thing that occurred to me as I was preparing for this sermon. Listen, I think this is kind of wonderful. When God sends his people into exile, he doesn't just do it to chasten and refine his people. He sends them into exile to bless and benefit the society in which they have been exiled. And we certainly see that in the letter that God commanded to write Jeremiah uh, back in around, oh, sometime between about 600 and 685 BC, uh, or uh, 600 and 585 BC, excuse me. Um, the Jewish people had been taken away into, into exile, you know, into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. who was the, Babylon was the world superpower of, uh, of the ancient Middle East at that time. And God's people were taken away into exile after, after Nebuchadnezzar had defeated uh, the kingdom of, of Israel and Judah. And then God instructed his prophet Jeremiah to reach out to the exiles in the country of Babylon. And he said for them to do this. He said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Listen to what it says. Seek the welfare of the city into which I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Listen, brothers and sisters, um, newsflash. God loves Babylon. God loves Babylon. Hey, Oscar. Oscar. Sorry, Oliver. Oliver. <laughs> All right. God loves Babylon, and God loves Babylonians. God loves Babylon, and God loves Babylonians. Did you notice that there's a word that comes up several times in this passage? The word is this, and it comes up repeatedly. All, all. Pray for all people. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. One of the things that is so easy to do when you become an outsider, when you are the exile, is to just begin to concern yourself with the life of your little outside group. We can become resentful and isolated and self-confined in our little Christian ghetto. But throughout this passage we just read, we hear that God's love and redeeming work are for everyone, for all people. God wants us to pray for all people because it says here he wants, all, he wants to save all people. As far as God's desire to save humanity goes, he is a universalist. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Well, did you mean like all people that we like? Or all people who agree with us? Or all people who share our political convictions? Or all people who are northern Europeans? I mean, which all? No. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God we have the universality of God, and then we have the exclusivity of God. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. There is an exclusive characteristic to the Christian faith. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself, but there's a deeply universal character, who gave himself as a ransom for a few people. No. Gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. Walter Locke was a British Anglican priest and theologian in in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, and he said this God's will to save is as wide as his will to create. God's will to save, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, is as wide as his will to create the universality of god's love and the all-embracing love and work of jesus christ comes up again and again throughout the new testament scriptures 2 corinthians 5:14 and 15 for the love of god a love of christ listen apostle paul says for the love of christ controls us because we have concluded this Controls us to do. This is what controls Paul's apostolic ministry. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Brothers and sisters, that is what the Word of God says. And if our tidy, precise, well-thought-out, late medieval scholastic theological system recoils at the universal love and universal act of redemption of Jesus Christ, then I want to humbly and meekly suggest that God does not seem to share your theology. Frederick Faber penned the words, There's a wideness in God's mercy. Like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice that is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. There is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior, there is healing in his blood. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, God. Isn't the gospel wonderful? Isn't God's love amazing? Doesn't it just take our hard, crusty old hearts and begin to break it apart a little bit? We are to love and care for the society to which we have been exiled. We should should all, as in uh, uh, Oswald Chambers' words, uh, he says this, We should all rouse ourselves up to get the mind of Christ about the one for whom we pray. We are to rouse ourselves up to get the mind of Christ for for the one for whom we pray. And Christ loves Babylon. And Christ loves Babylonians. So, we need to ask this question. Do we love Babylon and do we love Babylonians? What would our prayers sound like if we prayed like God loves the nation of our exile? Now, when Paul says to pray for all people, he immediately follows this up with a clarifying directive. First of all, I urge you that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings givings be made for all people for kings... And all who are in authority, or all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for those in authority so that the church may be at peace and unmolested. N.T. Wright says about the prayers of the church, he says this, However surprising it may seem to us, praying for those in authority, even if they are pagan rulers, will become part of God's plan to spread the gospel to all the world. When rulers are doing their job, even if they don't acknowledge God themselves, they create the peace and social stability which allows God's people to worship without being harassed and to build up families and communities that follow the way of holiness. In particular, when the world is at peace, the gospel can spread more easily. Pray for kings and all who are in authority. (laughs) Now, before we go any further... We need to ask a question about this text. Listen, who was an authority? Who was king when Paul is writing to Timothy and Ephesus? Well, since the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters of Paul, are more likely written late in Paul's ministry, the Roman emperor at this time is undoubtedly Nero. That's a name many of us know. Nero began his reign well, but as the years went by, his brutality became more and more evident. His excess and debauchery were open for all to see. He, he, uh, he had his mother executed. He kicked his wife uh, to death, Pompeia. His mother was Agrippina. His wife was Pompeia. And then from AD 64 until his death in AD 68... He was a vicious persecutor of the church. And both Peter and Paul were martyred under his reign. This is the one who was ruling the empire when Paul commands the church to pray for kings and those in high positions. He didn't say pray for kings and those in high positions except for that, that scoundrel Nero. And that brings me to a point of application that I've been looking forward to because I will get to offend 90% of everybody here. The other 10% just aren't listening. I'll get you coming or going on this one. I want you to listen to this next bit all the way through before your political ideology or maybe even better said your political idolatry prevents you from hearing the application of this text. I'm going to tell the truth about some things that many of us may not appreciate. Some might even be tempted to say, uh, like one politician said this, this past week during the Pope's recent visit, he said, I think religion ought to be about making us better as people and less about things that end up getting in the political realm. I just want to remind that person and everyone here that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't get crucified for making people better. He got crucified because his actions were perceived by the Roman government and the religio-political establishment as political actions. And FYI, my personal politics follow, fall under the uh, category of none of the above. It's my, they're weird, and I'll be happy to talk to you about them at length. So please listen to this. This president and this administration supports the redefinition of marriage in a way that christians who are bound by the word of god and the historic teaching of the church cannot endorse this administration actively promotes policies that necessarily necessarily criminalize acting on christian conviction in the public square little sisters of the poor This administration supports abortion, even partial birth, birth abortion, at every stage of a child's development in the womb up until birth. And evidently it's, it supports the cannibalizing of infants in the cell of their body a position that, the, that Christians who are bound by God's word and the historical teaching of the church all the way back to the earliest Christian document outside the New Testament, the Didache, we cannot support or endorse. And if we do, we have left the historic teaching of the scriptures and the church. And as of right now, this administration has yet to acknowledge, let alone condemn, even though it's been very quick to do so in many other cases, the fact that Christians were singled out for execution by the Oregon Community College gunmen And listen, I am choosing my words very carefully here. In fact, as far as I know, choosing my words very carefully, there has never been a presidential administration in the history of this nation that has demonstrated by its actions such an animus towards the core teachings and practices of the Christian faith. And now that I've made a good number of you angry, listen to me. Compared to the Roman Emperor Nero... This administration is sweetness and light. Compared to Nero, this president could be granted the title defender of the faith. So Bible book leaving Christian, then why in God's name aren't you praying for him? How may, we pray for the leaders of the... We're supposed to, we have a petition in, in our prayers, at the prayers of the people every Sunday... Well, we pray for the leaders of the people of the world. We pray for justice and peace. And I don't remember Barack Hussein coming up in the list very frequently. I believe the Bible. You don't believe that part. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, I'm chief of sinners. Are we praying like the early church prayed for the emperor's even when those emperors were persecuting the early church. Tertullian, an African early church father, writing during an era when the emperors were actively persecuting the church, he's the one that said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, urged the church to pray on behalf of the emperor, and these are his words, for long life... Secure dominion, a safe home, a faithful senate, a righteous people, and a world at peace. The Christian is the enemy of no man, least of all the emperor. For we know that since he has been appointed by God, it is necessary that we should love him and reverence him and honor him and desire his safety together with that of the whole Roman Empire. And if we weren't getting the message that Paul says, he tells us what these prayers are supposed to be like. They're not supposed to be like, oh, Lord, please drop an asteroid on the White House and obliterate this heathen. No, they're not prayers to be made in anger. He says, in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Prayer is not to be angry, railing against the authorities that govern us, but the genuine desire for their blessing, well-being, and that their hearts would be turned to Christ and that they would protect the peace of God's church. So, brothers and sisters, uh, I have been rebuked by this passage. And at the prayers of the people this morning, when we come to the petition, praying for justice and peace, and for those in authority, I want to encourage you to pray by name for those in authority. If you need help, uh, the given name of our president is Barak. And we need to, in the words of Oswald Chambers, to rouse ourselves up to get the mind of Christ about the one for whom we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand with me at this time.